Alright, if you have a Bible, let's get after it. Acts chapter 19 is where we'll be. Acts chapter 19, we'll work our way through the chapter this morning. You picked a good Sunday to come to church. Uh, Acts chapter 19 has got to be the funniest and most entertaining chapter of the Bible. Uh, I really do believe it is. And that's why you go to church, right? To laugh and to be entertained. So, <laughs> Thanks, Hayden. We got this, uh, we got it this morning, Acts 19. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that some, as we get into the latter half of Acts, there are a few chapters and passages that could really be made into a blockbuster movie, I think, really, really well. And in particular, I had in mind this chapter here in uh, the book of Acts. Now, real quick before we get started, Jake mentioned uh, those little sheets with his phone number and that kind of stuff. Just want you to know, his phone number is also where you call to complain about sermons uh, and things of that nature. That's a 24-7 thing, okay? So at any time, he would love to take those calls uh, and, and let you know what's happening there. All right, so time to offend you. Let's go. Acts, uh, Acts 19. We'll, we'll pick it up in verse 1 here. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's your answer. Who's the, what's, who's the Holy Spirit? And he says, well, okay, then into what were you baptized? What are you disciples of? What were you baptized into if not the Holy Spirit? And they said into John's baptism. So John the, the Baptist, the baptizer, uh, Jesus' older cousin. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is... Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and Greeks. Okay, if you've got a pen and you're an underliner or a highlighter, three things we want to point out here as we get started, okay? The first is you've got the name of Jesus, okay? Baptized into the name of Jesus in verse 5. Then in verse 8, the kingdom of God. We don't like kingdom of God. And then verse 9, the way, okay? Um, the Christians are called the way. Uh, real quick here with this baptism. So these, these people were followers of John the Baptist, had not progressed to the one John the Baptist was talking about, which would be Jesus. I actually learned this this week uh, while reading this text. There are still people today who follow John the Baptist. Like that's a religion. They're committed to John the Baptist, not to Jesus. They're not Christians. They're followers, disciples of John the Baptist, mainly in Iraq. There's a little group of, it's a, it's a whole little religion. Um, and so they, they follow John the Baptist. Paul encounters people like this uh, and says, well, let me tell you about Jesus, whom John the Baptist was just setting up for. And then they're baptized. They receive the Spirit. Paul lays hands on them. And then they get the tongues uh, of the Spirit. They, they start speaking in tongues. Now, there is a theological debate that happens around this passage and other passages about just how it is you and I receive the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, He's the personal power and presence of God. He comes and dwells with believers. This miraculous gift given to believers. Some would say this. There are two kind of positions here. Some would say when you believe, when you become a Christian, you're given the Spirit. Those two things are for the most part synonymous. Others though would say they are two separate events. So you become a believer, you get baptized, and you're a Christian. 
But then you should be waiting for a subsequent experience where you receive the Holy Spirit, where they call it baptized in the Spirit. You're, you become baptized in the Spirit. This would be the more charismatic Pentecostal uh, denominations of Christianity. And, and there's evidence. Here's how you know if you've spoken, if you've uh, received the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, right? Uh, and so, I mean, I know people like this. I, I used to work at a bookstore with um, some Pentecostals who uh, thought I was kind of a second-class Christian because I had never spoken in tongues, right? And so they would come in and say, hey, we've been praying that you would be baptized in the Holy Spirit and just would receive that and would start speaking in tongues and things of that nature. I'm like, well, good news. No worries. I've got the Holy Spirit, okay? So you can... I mean, you don't have to forget about that. You don't have to stay up at night thinking through that, okay? Uh, we've mentioned this in more depth at the beginning of Acts. I don't think there's biblical support for this. I think even here it kind of crumbles down. They believe and then they get the Spirit. This is not a normative picture in the book of Acts. Uh, in the book of Acts you get all of these different kind of timelines, okay? Um, so I don't think the New Testament would imagine a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, I don't think... Um, according to Paul, you can confess that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit inside of you, okay? The positive point here is that Christians get the Holy Spirit. And this is a huge deal, okay? This is um, a big gift that's given to the church in the book of Acts. The personal power and presence of God dwelling inside of us. For Paul in Romans 8, he's going to think through, I mean, if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, I mean, what kind of confidence would that create in you? What kind of life would that create in you? What kind of power would that give you? And so the, the disciples are given the Holy Spirit here in the name of Jesus. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. So name in the ancient world stood for authority or power. Okay, think of if you knew someone rich and you kind of dropped their name, right? You're referring to the power and authority that they have behind that name. Now, Paul's in the synagogue like he normally is. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's unpack that real quick, okay? Kingdom of God, big idea. Heaven is coming to earth. God's reign, his rule is being set up right here, right now, in the messy everyday lives that we experience. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Christians believe, Jesus preached, that the kingdom was starting through Jesus' life. Now, it's not been finished. It's here, but not yet. But heaven has started to come to earth. A new reality has been created that Christians are called to live into now. And so Paul's preaching. He's persuading people to live into the kingdom of God, to experience that. And then there starts to be opposition, as there usually is, against, though, what's termed the way. This was a, a real common name for the early Christians. They were called the way. Probably shorthand for like, the way that they walked, their lifestyle. The life that they lived. And it's very, very, very interesting that they were known for being these kind of countercultural people who had a different type of speech and a different type of um, spending money and a different type of worshiping. They had a different type of life altogether. It was the way of the people who followed Jesus. Now, as we've read through the book of Acts, we've seen and we're going to see even more here in Acts chapter 19 a big difference between the early church and us. Okay? And for most people, when they read through the book of Acts, it's one big exercise in how to justify how we got to here. Why our experience looks nothing like the early church's experience. I mean, could not be further from what the early church seemed to experience when they were following Christ and, and following after him, okay? What I want to do, though, as we walk through the book of Acts, is not try to rationalize why we should be down here, but instead ask, what are we missing out on? I think we have largely shortchanged ourselves. 
in our experience of Jesus, in our experience of the gospel, and how we understand it, and how we, we experience the Spirit in the church. I think we're content, for the most part, with a small gospel. I think we're content with kind of this anemic experience of the church. And I, I think the biggest reason why this happens is because we aren't willing to let the gospel challenge our assumptions about life. We're not willing to actually join away. We want Jesus to baptize what we already thought, how we already lived, what we would have done anyways. Now, we really, we really would like Jesus' name endorsing us, right? And we'd really like this kind of, kind of go-to-heaven card that we can put in our back pocket as we kind of do what we do um, with our, our daily lives. But we miss out on the power, I think, because this power comes when, when they're walking, when they're walking in the way. And we're going to see in Ephesus, there's this huge amount of power that bursts forth from the disciples as the Spirit is moving upon them in ways that, again, I don't think you and I can hardly even imagine what that would look like if it happened among us. And I think it's because we're, for the most part, just not even willing to challenge some of the assumptions that we hold. We're not willing to let the gospel critique us and change us. So, so 1 Corinthians, um, the first chapter, and on a little bit in chapter 2, which was written while Paul is in Ephesus doing this two-year ministry, probably toward the end, talks about Jesus being God's wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is all about how, how to live the right kind of life, the kind of life that will lead you to blessedness and to happiness and to joy, the kind of life that will lead you to God. What does that life look like? And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians is kind of just amazed at the beginning. It's one of my favorite sections of the Bible. He's talking about how the cross flips wisdom upside down. How the cross completely flips on its head everything we would have thought about how we should live life and what the blessed life is and how we should know God, things of that nature. So, I mean, we could run through it. The cross would not be my idea. If I'm thinking through how God's going to come rescue the world, I'm coming with that plan. If I'm on that creative team with the Trinity, okay, I'm not the one putting, why don't you go die on the whiteboard? That's not part of my kind of wisdom. I'm also not the one who's going to say, why don't you go be incarnated as a poor baby in nowhere town, Palestine, with largely little fanfare? And why don't you grow up with really no one knowing about you, why don't you spend your life serving other people, hanging out with the poor, the dejected, the downtrodden? And again, why don't you go, why don't you go get crucified? That's not, that's not my type of wisdom. That's not my idea of how to live life. And if we're honest, that's not our idea of how to live life. You know how I know? That's not how we live. We're still on this kind of American dream experiment, which doesn't seem to line up very well with the wisdom shown through the life death of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's where you go down the social ladder. You serve more and more people instead of being served. You give your money away to the poor instead of stockpiling up for yourself. You end up dying instead of trying to live. And then you allow God to, to resurrect you. I'm convincingly, I'm increasingly convinced that if I can take, as a Christian, my opinion or view on certain issues on certain things, or my way of acting or talking or thinking, and I can line it up to people who don't know Jesus. And if they're the same, I think I'm wrong. If I talk the way someone who doesn't know Jesus talks, I think I've missed something. 
And if I spend my money the way that someone who doesn't know Jesus spends their money, again, I think I'm off somewhere. And if I think about politics the way that someone thinks about politics, I don't know Jesus, I think I've, I've, I've gone off the trail a little bit somewhere. The wisdom of the world that's around us, it's not the wisdom of a first century Jewish man who dies on a cross. It's the wisdom of American democracy, Western philosophy, the scientific revolution. But Jesus' wisdom flips everything upside down. It challenges everything we think about what it means to live life and to live life well. And when people enter into that way, they, they experience this kind of powerful, transforming event. And so I want us to walk through the, the rest of this chapter. I want us to be looking for that, okay? Look for this power that comes out of people who, who walk in this way. We'll see the power work on an individual level, and then we'll see the power work on a socio-political level, like completely destroying a city. Um, because of the, the way the gospel transforms things, okay? So we'll keep reading here. Now God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That is an awesome ability, okay? I want that. That would be cool. <laughs> I give like one out of two good sermons, maybe, okay, if I've really hit like a good month. Paul, like if clothing was on him, people try to steal it and go heal people with it and cast out demons and things like that. That's just on a different level. I'm sorry. I apologize to your pastor that I'm not as good as this. I mean, this would be amazing. This would be really nice. But, but this kind of power that Paul is walking in. Again, I mean, this is... I don't, I don't... I know pastors. I don't know anyone who does this. I mean, I'm not sure I know anyone who claims to do this. There are some people out there who claim to be able to do some extraordinary healing kind of stuff. I'm not sure there's, there's this out there. This is what the early church is experiencing. I mean, it's just different from us. It's just way different. Paul, if he blows his nose, if he wears an apron, he'll heal, cast out demons, evil spirits. Now, it's about to get really good. Verse 13. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which is an awesome way to start a story, okay? If your story starts with itinerant Jewish exorcists, you know it's about to get good. <laughs> so there were these traveling exorcists, drive out demons, um, these traveling Jewish exorcists. Apparently, this is a very common thing in the ancient world. This was a large group of people. Um, and they undertook to invoke the name, again, the authority, the power of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, in the ancient world, this was what magic was about. It was a very popular practice. Um, you had both professional magicians and you had like lay person, like housewives, right? You have your little incantations. There were romance potions, okay? There were curses you could put on your neighbor, things like that. I mean, there was all these kind of different magical spells and incantations that you could utter. Ephesus seemed to be kind of a hub of superstition uh, and, and magic. But it was all about these incantations, these phrases that you would have to use and that would be how you manipulated a god, which is what magic is. Magic is manipulating a divine power without having to submit to it, without having to know it, without having to be in a, a proper relationship to it. That's the difference between magic and a miracle. <clears throat> a miracle is, it happens in, in submission to God, in a relationship with him of obedience. Magic is just manipulating. And how would you manipulate? Well, you have to find the right phrase. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists are like, that is cool. Look at what Paul's doing over there. If we could get some in on that action, I mean, our business would explode, okay? And so they're like, all right, what's... Okay, here's the, the cantation. In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they think that's kind of going to be the key that helps them out here. Now, we know that these Jewish exorcists weren't all that Jewish sometimes. 
And so what would happen is if someone came to me with an evil spirit, and I'm one of these exorcists, I would run down a list of all these different gods and all the incantations I need to say about that god, hoping that one of those would stick, right? And i throw it on the wall, see what stays there, hoping that one of those gods would drive out the evil spirit. I'd travel around and do this, okay? Now, it gets even better. Now, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. Family business, okay? Uh, but the evil spirit answered them, <laughs> Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. So, so this is the demon talking. They're like, yeah, we're aware of Jesus. We're aware of the, the Holy One who's come to destroy us. He's come around. He's, he's, he's caused some havoc for us. He's kind of invaded into our territory. He's been throwing us out left and right. We're aware of Jesus. You mentioned Jesus. We're aware. You're not him. We've also heard of Paul. Which is, I mean, the demons have been talking about Paul, okay? We're aware Paul's in here. He's causing some, some havoc, too. We're aware of Paul. I'm sorry, but who are you? And that's when the just say, oh, no. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> this is not going to go well. Now, there's seven on one at this point, okay? You got seven on one, but one of them happens to have an evil spirit. Now, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them, which is an awesome way of saying he beat them up. He overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I once learned from a pastor older and wiser than I am that there is a really important principle being taught here in the story. The principle is this. If you go into a fight with pants on and you leave the fight without pants on, you lost the fight. <laughs> so, so they go in dressed they come out naked and bloodied okay that's that's a losing fight this one guy takes on all seven of them stomps them down i've been in two fist fights in my life one i won one i didn't okay but this you have seven people never fight with an evil spirit it goes bad for you these guys got got mastered they got whooped um, and now this became known to all the residents of Ephesus so this is like the chatter in the streets right here it happened to seven people how embarrassing for them they, they thought they could kind of get on this Jesus exorcism business, and the spirit just kind of went off on them. All the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Do you see what I, I mean about, I mean, this could be a movie. This could be good. Um, this is just an entertaining story. Now, fear fell upon all of them, and the name, again, the power of the Lord Jesus was extolled, was lifted up. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. This would have been the books where they listed off all the different incantations. You just have to organize these sayings so you'd be able to draw on them. They brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is a lot. In verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily. Now, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase, prevail mightily, is the climax of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. This is as high as it gets for Paul. Ephesus is kind of like his last big hurrah in ministry. He spends the most time here. It's toward the end of the actual ministry he'll be doing. And he has this huge amount of success. I mean, he's really hit his groove in Ephesus. So much so that his apron is healing people. These large groups of magicians are coming and believing, and they're confessing their sins, and they're burning their books. The word of the Lord increased mightily, prevailed. It was powerful. It transformed. It was powerful. Now, from here, for the rest of the book, it's going to be downhill for Paul. 
He's going to be suffering. There's going to be lots of trials, lots of temptations, lots of jail time. In fact, we don't know exactly what happened. Luke doesn't mention it. But when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he mentions the time at Ephesus where he thought he was going to die. Where he despaired of life itself. He was at his lowest point, he says he ever was. Luke doesn't tell us about that. Perhaps it, it is involved with what comes next in the book of Ephesus. But for now, I want you to see the power that's coming out of how Paul is healing and teaching and preaching and the gospel is coming forth. And you have this large group of people who do what? They convert to the way. And they step out of their old practices, their old life, being magicians. They step out of ways that are no longer compatible with the life that they are desiring to lead as they follow Christ, as they, as they walk after him. It's interesting that they burn the books here. It's obviously worth a lot of money, these books. It's interesting that they don't sell them. And it's interesting that they don't give them away to a friend who, who would want it. And it's interesting that they don't you know, kind of put it away on their back shelf. Apparently, these people believed, because of what they now knew about Jesus, the world had no place for magic. Not with them or with anyone else. These books had no reason to exist anymore. They walked away from it completely. And they walked away from it in public. This kind of public confession, which is really interesting. The way, I mean, just kind of the gritty nature of this confession here. A lot of times, I think how confession works for us is it's real polite confession, right? I mean, it's, you go to your little group and you're like, I got really impatient with my wife this week. And I gave her a dirty look. And I left the house pretty angry. Closed the door a little too hard. I'm asking for your forgiveness you pray for me could you help me out this is more like so my neighbor and i there's this patch of lawn between our houses he's supposed to mow it but he never mows it so it always looks kind of stupid so i put a curse on him in his household his daughter's not feeling well i kind of think i'm responsible could you pray for me could you help me out here i mean this is like varsity level sin that they're coming out of in public with each other saying this is not how we're walking anymore now again Here's, I think, where we miss out on this power. I think sometimes we don't actually walk out of our old lifestyles. I don't think we actually can completely get kind of re-socialized in the community of Jesus and the church. I think we sell the magic books, or we give them away, or we, we even put them on our bookcase just in case. Or we edit out of them what we think Jesus might not want in there, but we still keep the books themselves. In a sense, we baptize what we already had or we're already participating in. It makes no sense for these people to burn these books unless they really do believe in who Christ is. Unless they really have experienced the Spirit. And so here's a question I've asked before, and I'll, I'll keep asking this because I think it's just spot on for us. Does your life make sense outside of the truths of Jesus? Like, is there a way to explain your life, how you live, how you act, how you think, other than Jesus came, died, resurrected, and that person has his spirit now? Or have you just baptized with Jesus' name everything you would have done anyways? The life you would have probably lived anyways, the way you would have spent your money anyways, the way you would have treated people anyways, have you just somehow figured out an intellectual loophole to keep your, your books, to keep your old lifestyle? Or have you so committed into the way, into the, the lifestyle of Jesus, that, that there's really no explanation other than that this person really believes this, their, their life is sold out to this? 
And we can ask these questions, and I think these would be worthy questions. Does the way you spend money, does the way I spend money, does my bank account, is the only explanation for that, that I believe the kingdom of God is here? And I believe I've been given the Spirit. And I believe I'm on a mission. <clears throat> or does my bank account look eerily similar to almost anyone else's bank account who's my age in Sugarland, Texas? Have I just baptized how I would have spent money anyways? This is, this is, this is just how I, I do it. This is how we all do it. Is the way that I treat people I don't like? There's a lot of them. Is the way that I treat people I don't like, can that be explained other than the fact that I've been loved when I was an enemy? That I've been given grace? Or do I kind of treat them like anybody else would? I might do my best occasionally to baptize my hatred, but that's really how we all treat people anyways. Is the way that I endure suffering only explainable because of what I think my hope is? Because of what I think is, is waiting for me? Because of what I think I'm being formed into, even through suffering. Are our lives, in a sense, distinctly Christian? Hauerwas, Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite authors, he says this about uh, Christianity. He says, The Bible finds uninteresting many of our modern preoccupations about whether or not we can believe. The Bible is concerned much more with whether or not we are faithful to the gospel whether we are obedient to the gospel, whether we walk in the way of the gospel. The truth about the way things are now that God is with us through the life, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. I think what we do so that we can avoid being challenged, having our lifestyles challenged, is again, we, we make Christianity about these intellectual claims, about these three things that I can kind of verbalize. And if I can believe that, then I'm on board. And then we struggle so much with, with whether or not I can believe those things sometimes. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe. Sometimes like, I just not, I'm not sure if I can believe that. Sometimes it just seems like this is, this is all kind of a, a, an accident. Sometimes it seems like there's, there's just not really any rhyme or reason to what's happening here. I'm not sure if I can believe these kind of things. He says, the Bible really is never really that concerned with it. He's right on this issue. The Bible's more concerned with, are you loving your enemies? Are you giving your money away? Are you serving people? Are you praying? Are you worshiping? Then you're a Christian. If I was concerned with are you faithful to the gospel, does your life make sense because of the truths about who Jesus is, because of what he's done? Now it's easy to make it about intellectual claims because then we never have to deal with the fact that I'm not loving my enemies. I'm not praying. I'm not giving my money away. I'm not doing the kind of things that Jesus demands of his disciples. But when these people walk out of their old lifestyles, walk out of the lifestyle that's still continued by everyone around them, and enter into this entirely new way of living that only exists because of Jesus, they experience this kind of radical power. We'll keep reading in verse 21 here. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying... After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, 
he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose again no little disturbance concerning the way. Concerning the way. I always want to push you back on this. Why would people get upset at the Christians if they just had a few weird ideas? If it was just a couple intellectual claims that other people just couldn't get on board with. What, what about that would upset people so much? Or, or push it back a little bit further. Why did Jesus really get crucified? Do you really crucify someone for saying you should love each other? Now, surely that was a big part of Jesus' message. But you don't crucify that guy. You just don't invite him over to dinner, right? I mean, you just ignore him. He's just, he's just awkward and weird. And, and you, don't, you don't get upset and in the face of people who preach strange things on the corners. You crucify people. You get upset at them when they challenge the status quo. And when they walk in a different way and get other people to walk in a different way. And it challenges everything you've believed. It challenges all the wisdom that you had. When the wisdom of Jesus flips upside down and then stands in stark contrast with your wisdom, that's when you get upset. When you're exposed, because there's a group of people who walk in the way of the Lord. So, so this way is causing trouble. Again, I mean, this is just so different from our experience, right? I mean, sinful people don't care that we exist as a church. It doesn't upset them. They're not really concerned about us, right? I mean, we're not a threat to them. And I'm not saying we should be like a physical threat or anything like that, right? But this, the, Paul goes by says, and you're either on board or you're, you're beating them up and kicking them out. It's that much of a, a, an issue for you. Now, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, <clears throat> Artemis is a, a goddess, okay? And she, her temple in Ephesus is one of the wonders of the world at this time. It's this huge, sprawling thing. Again, remember that religion in the ancient world is not separate from culture or politics or banking or anything like that. It's all intertwined. So at this temple, you would have had um, the market. You would have had your bank. You would have had um, where there were political meetings. I mean, everything is kind of intertwined. If you were to reject Artemis, and this is why people get upset, if you reject a religion, you're rejecting that whole way of life. I mean, even sometimes that's how you engage with your family members, things like that. Now, Artemis is a, a goddess and she is, interestingly enough, the protector of virginity and also the fertility goddess, which I'm not sure how those two things <laughs> necessarily go side by side. When in Rome, I guess. Uh, so, so she is an interesting um, um, goddess, very famous, very powerful. Um, it was believed in, in the ancient world, and Ephesus was very proud that Artemis was there. Uh, now, there are these shrines that Demetrius is selling, okay? Um, and you can actually Google this, and, and you'll be able to see it. Um, and it's this kind of womanly figure. And on her, her chest are, like, all these different lumps, like dozens of different lumps. And people debate over kind of what this is, okay? You can go research that kind of stuff. Um, we'll just pass on that. Um, but, but these are the shrines that Artemis is making, all right? We have some of these from the first century. So most likely, I mean, that's kind of what, what's happening here. And now he says, we, we make these silver shrines of Artemis, and they bring no little business to the craftsmen. This is how we're, we're making our money. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, that, that we won't have business anymore, 
but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And you can see, I think, the combination. One, we're going to lose our business, and when you hit people in the pocketbooks, they fight back. Two, I mean, this is how our city is structured. This is how the world knows us. If we stop worshiping Artemis, I mean, the whole thing's going to crumble in on itself. This is a serious social threat. Now, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So in your worship guide, I put a picture in there of the theater in Ephesus. You can still go there to this day. It's huge, sprawling. Could seat about 25,000 people. And so, I mean, this is a crazy scene. This whole city gets in this uproar, and there's this confusion, and they're screaming and yelling, and they rush into this big theater, okay? They drag a couple of Paul's people in there. Now, Paul, in verse 30, wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Paul wants to go into the crowd. He says, let me go in. This is a perfect opportunity. The whole city's here. I can preach. We converted. He's done. We'll move on to the next one. But you've got Paul's kind of secret service team happening here, right? Do not go in there. You will not come out if you go in there. These people are not going to treat you very kindly. This is not going to be an, an, an Athens type situation where you get to go in and just debate ideas. It will hurt you. Stay away from it. But, but the, the city is kind of filled into this area in the, in the theater. Now some cried out, verse 32, one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. They're like, oh, why are we here? Do you know that? No, no. I'm really upset. But what is happening? What is, what's going on? I'm told this happens with crowds. I'm told this, this happens when, when riots go on. Now, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense of the crowd. But then they recognized that he was a Jew. So for two more hours, they all cried out with one voice, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So they're all aware that something's going on with Artemis. And if you're a Jew, we don't want to hear from you, okay? And they spent two hours screaming and rioting in this theater. And then when the town clerk had quieted the crowd... He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. So the legend behind Artemis being in Ephesus was that a meteorite um, in ancient times had come down and landed in Ephesus. And lo and behold, that rock was Artemis, the statue of Artemis, the sacred stone that, that fell from the sky. Saying then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, which is not a good offense in the Roman Empire with the emperor watching you. And since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So it ends almost as oddly as it began. Okay? You've got this huge group of thousands of people screaming for hours. And this guy gets up and says, you know what? There's no charge against them. Go to the court. They're really something. We're going to get in trouble because we're rioting. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's right. And they go home. <laughs> Serious nap time after this. All right? <laughs> screaming for two hours in, in the, the theater here in Ephesus. Now, here's what's interesting about this scene. 
when the gospel started transforming lives in Ephesus, it so affected people, they so changed the way that they walked, that it started to crumble the economic structure of the entire city. So when we, we talked about politics right before the election, we saw this. The way Luke portrays whether the Christians are a threat to the state or not is complex. It's, yeah, they're a threat. No, they're not a threat. Right? Legally, they're not guilty. Almost every trial, right? Paul's let off. You're not guilty. We, there is no charge to bring against you. But think this through. Demetrius is on to something, right? He really sees what's happening. Which is if this continues... Our whole city falls down. I have no business. What we're structured on completely crumbles in front of us. Is it a threat to the city? Not legally. I mean, there is no charge to bring against them. They're not doing anything illegal. But oh yeah. The kingdom's out to change everything. It's out to take this city of Ephesus and make it heaven on earth. Where people are not following in the way of Jesus. It's as much of a threat as that city's ever seen if it wants to continue in civil practices. Again, think through how powerful the gospel must be that when the church starts, when they, they start functioning, I mean, the whole socio-political structure of the city starts to change. We don't have that kind of impact. We don't, we're not even close to that. What would it take for you and I to be so different of a group of people and to, to create people who were so different that those who were making money off of sinful practices would get upset and riot. Because let's agree here, if we did that, they would. If you hit people in their pocketbooks, you will receive blowback. The reason we're not receiving blowback is because we're really not changing anything. So I think the classic example here is the, the pornography industry. Okay, um, a, a nation of largely Christians who would, I think largely stand morally opposed to, to pornography, this is booming industry of pornography. Lots and lots and lots of money is made in pornography. Now, the pornography industry, for the most part, is not scared of Christians. It's mostly Christians who, who buy it, right? I mean, that's their, that's their clientele. Every now and then, there are these weird legislations that the religious right try to get passed, right? But for the most part, it's not a, it's not a big issue. It would become a very big issue, though, if the larger group of Christians decided to act like Christians and follow in the way and said, yeah, there's no need for that business anymore. There would be repercussions. There would be things that happen. It would be a right. It would be a scene. People would be talking about it. But we and we're not walking in the way. I've got statistics here. I, I looked this up between services. I didn't have it for the first one. At every second, actually, like every single second, over $3,000, $3,075 is spent on pornography. That's a big industry. That's a big economic industry. That's almost how much I get paid a year, guys. So come to vote on this next budget, all right? $57 billion worldwide. $12 billion in the USA. All, uh, if you take all the revenue from national football, uh, baseball, and basketball, combine them, it's more than that. If you take all the revenue from CBS, ABC, and NBC, it's more than that um, combined. Um, which just boggles the mind. I mean, even if you're not morally opposed to pornography, it's just kind of crazy to me to think it makes that much money. Like, it's that big of, a, of an industry. And again, you've got... So, I mean, $12 billion is the, the USA number, right? $12 billion of a nation of Christians. No. What would happen if an industry collapsed because people started walking in the way of Jesus? 
I mean, I think of, of Sam and, and, and the ministry she's involved um, with the, the brothels here in Houston, the sex slavery that happens there, right? Um, so if there's this, this businessman who's running this very successful brothel and it closes down because people are getting saved and, and walking out of that lifestyle, they're going to be upset. There's going to be confrontations. People aren't going to be allowed to come around their business anymore. But, but a church in the city, they're not really threatened. They know nothing's really going to happen, right? We'll continue to make money off our simple practices. Or think through this. This, this is going to stretch you maybe, okay? I'm pretty committed, from my study of the scriptures, to a nonviolent attitude in the world. To an attitude that says, I'm not going to cause violence, physical harm. I, I, I'm not going to kill people. You don't even have to go with me that far to say, I at least don't want to kill people, Right? The Christian classic just war theory. If I end up killing people, or if we as a group end up killing people, we're going to have to explain it. It's going to have to be the last thing we do. We're going to have to try every other option. And then even when we're doing that, there are going to be certain rules that we play by. I think it's a a pretty basic Christian stance. Even if you're not 100% opposed to killing, just war theory would say, I'm 99%. That's going to be the last thing I want to do in the world, is to have to kill somebody for the sake of justice. Why? Well, our God is a crucified Messiah. He didn't fight, right? He didn't bring down the angels and blow people up. It's not what he did. He died on the cross. And so we say, well, we're going to suffer too. Now we're going to do our best to protect people and to love people and things like that. In the day, we're going to leave in God's hands instead of trying to accomplish it with our own force, all right? Two things here. One, Christians don't practice just war. Look through through recent wars, okay? It's not just. By any, so we all think we're practicing just war, even as a nation, right? You'll even hear politicians throw down the label just war theory. But that's because no one actually knows what just war theory is. Look it up. We've never come close to it, okay? There's very specific criteria, and no matter who you look at, the criteria, right? It just doesn't kind of go there. It's not our last option. The, the attitude that we find across the whole world, and so I'm not picking on America here, is... If I feel threatened and I've got weapons, I'm going to kill. I want to be safe. We've got carbon bombs? Send them over. We've got drones? Send them over. Let's nuke them out. And in fact, we get upset when things get leaked to us about the kind of crazy things that we're doing when we kill other people in the world. We're like, that made me really guilty tonight. I'm going to have to go drink that off, sleep it off, come back tomorrow and try again. There's a big industry that's, that, that's built on war. In fact, some people say that's the only way the American economy survives, is war. You need constant war for the American economy to keep kind of going. And that's probably most nation states in today's world. Um, but it, it would be termed the military-industrial industry. Here's my question. What would happen if not Christians were pacifists? Not if they all said, we're never going to fight, we don't believe in war, destroy everything. Okay? I'm not asking you to be that crazy. But what if Christians really pushed to make war the last resort? What if we opposed war if we didn't think it was the last resort? What if we displayed that stance that let's fight for peace, let's make peace, let's pray for peace, that we will repent and mourn if we have to go to war? That huge sprawling industry would be hit hard. In fact, I'm not sure. I think some people say the American economy might not survive that. 
if there was really that big of a shift in attitude toward war. If people really cared that much about the people who were being killed around the world, that kind of thing. I just want us to imagine what would ha- what could be the what could what could happen if Christians really were so committed to the way of Jesus and had other people join them in such a committed way that things that were built off of practices that do not align with Jesus started to crumble. There's no need for them anymore. And if we can't imagine that, we need to work on our imaginations. And we need to read the book of Acts a couple more times. And we need to rethink Paul here in Ephesus. Because he comes in and he doesn't baptize their worship of Artemis. He says Christians don't do that. And if that means Artemis goes, so much the worse for Artemis. If that means the economy collapses, so much the worse for that economy. We're not going to be idolaters. If it means we we burn $50,000 worth of magic books, that's what we do. We're walking in a different way. The gospel is transforming us. It's being powerful. And not only is it transforming us, but through us, through our transformation, the very socio-political structures of the world are being affected. Christians aren't baptizing the status quo. I mean, you've got to think through, is the world as we know it a Christian world? Is it a world that largely is in tune with the ways of Jesus? I just can't imagine that that answer could be positive, that you could say yes. We've largely come a long way, and most of the things that happen in the world are similar to how Jesus would want them to happen. I mean, please turn on the news. Please read the newspaper. And if, if the answer is no, then we better be separate from the ways the world are functioning. And we better hope that one day our lifestyle would influence, would change, would affect the way that the world is functioning. There's a website, and some, a couple of people asked me for it in the first service, I can give it to them. There's a website that when you enter in the money you spend and what you own and things of that nature, will work out and calculate how many slaves you own. Uh, it's pretty intense. Um, I mean, you would realize there's huge slave happening right now. I mean, and lots of the stuff we buy on a regular basis is traced back to child slaves and things like that, all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the website's pretty slickly built, things like that, and you kind of walk through different areas of your life, where you go purchase stuff, what you own in your house, things like that. And then, I mean, so by the time I was done, I think what I own 60 slaves, which is, was a shock to me, right? I don't think I own slaves. But you look in the statistics, I mean, they'll show you with kind of a detailed report and say, like, well, you said that, and that gets traced back to this situation. Google it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's happening. Down to the kind of, like, candy we buy. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty shocking if you don't think about it. Two options when that happens to, to me, right? I can say I'm doing the best that I'm doing. I don't even know I had slaves. I didn't know that was coming from that, right? I'm doing the best I can do. I can baptize mediocrity. I can baptize the way of the world. Or I can stretch my imagination and say, well... What would it look like if I could somehow walk out of that? If I could somehow start to change that? If I could somehow start to say, you know what? I'm not comfortable with that. I don't think that lines up. Maybe I can't change that overnight. Maybe I can't even change that in my own life overnight. But, but at least I'm aware I'm walking out of that. I mean, I think of, I mean, another example would be a real famous candy company who, who you can easily trace back their candy to, to child slaves. Uh, I mean, what would happen if, Christian nation of the USA said we're not buying that anymore there'd be big things happening but I think we've, we've, we've shortchanged ourselves 
And I think that's why we read the book of Acts and, and we go, well, that was really exciting. But I just go to church and, and hear an inspirational sermon for five minutes, go home and, and live like everyone else. And I miss out on the joy of Christian life. I miss out on what it truly means to live in the kingdom. I miss out on what it really means to be full of the Spirit and to walk in the things that Jesus came for us to walk in. So this morning, maybe we, we just ask ourselves, is my life only explainable by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? Um, and, and maybe stretch our imaginations, go, what ways could the world change if we really stood up for what we are supposed to believe in? If we really were faithful to the gospel, to the world that's been created by Jesus' coming, by his, his entering into our situation. And we remember, like we talked about last week, God's given us time, right? So, so the 60 slaves that I see that come up on that website, that doesn't paralyze me. That doesn't make me question God's grace on my life or his love for me. And I don't think that's something I have to fix overnight, I look at the Corinthian church and I see the time that they've been given to grow and to mature and to develop. I see the community they've been given to grow with and to develop with. But I think it's a worthy, a worthy exercise to read through Acts to, to, to try to use our imaginations in today's world and try to question, question ourselves so that we too might experience the transforming power of, of Jesus in the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you did not leave things like the status quo, that, that you saw a world that was walking on its way to death, Father, enslaved to sin and death. And, and you said, that's not good enough for me. And you sent your son to rescue, to redeem, to pull people out of that slavery, Father. And we thank you for that, and we ask that you would continue to open our, our eyes up to ways that we maybe are still enslaved and, and maybe still need to receive your salvation and still need to, to walk out of sinful, deathful ways, Father. Uh, we, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the book of Acts that, that challenges us, that doesn't let us think that the way things are now is the way they have to be. And the way things are in my life is the way they have to be. And the way things are in our church is the way that they have to be. But that, that lets us know that there's this power out there that, that's still to be tapped into. There's this grace and mercy to still be walked into, Father. So we pray your blessings over us. We pray your blessings over our church, Father, that we would, would see you, know you, and, and be transformed. And as we come to the table, we pray that you would reveal yourself here, Father. We pray that you would meet us and transform us. Uh, we pray that we would be further shaped into the way. As we do the things of the way, one of them primarily being coming and eating the bread and drinking the wine. We love you. It's in your son's name that all of God's people said. Amen. Amen.